I am uh, excited about sharing with you tonight the story of this man here, Elisha the prophet. So we are in a series right now describing the kings of both Israel and Judah. And we, so we've been spending a lot of time walking through uh, describing this king and that king and the circumstances in which they find themselves ruling over God's people. Um, it's not just that it's been a couple of weeks since I've been here, but it's always good to just go back and to take a look at what are some of the overarching ideas that are holding us together as we're looking at these sections of scripture. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, because uh, we're literally going to be walking through a little bit like Ryan did last week. We're going to be walking through the account of this prophet's life and recognizing what might be different from him in relation to, uh, to the other prophets. There is no book in the Bible called Elijah, and there is no book in the Bible called Elisha. So in some way, these two prophets here, which are found in First and Second Kings, um, are not actually even mentioned in the Quranical material, uh, really give us a highlight to the fact that First and Second Chronicles are clearly a story of what's going on in the southern kingdom, the kingdom also known as the tribes of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Um, uh, and then you've got the northern tribes, uh, which the majority of the information that you're going to find about that actually come in First and Second Kings. So First and Second Kings, northern tribes, First and Second Chronicles focus more on the kingdom of David and his uh, descendants in uh, Judah and, uh, uh, and, the, and the tribe of Benjamin. You have these prophets who in the Bible uh, rise up and they speak in particular contexts. One of these is different than all of the others, and that is this one here. These are little tidbits for us to, to just kind of have in our minds. Jonah is not necessarily a prophecy against Israel itself, if you remember, Jonah is actually called out of, he's, he's a northern prophet, but he's actually called out of the north, and he goes where? To Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh to preach against that great city. Um, the city of Nineveh would be actually the capital of the Assyrians, and the Assyrians in 722 B.C., are actually going to be the nation that are going to destroy Israel and uh, kind of, they don't really take them off into captivity. The Assyrians had a little bit of a different way of dealing with the, con uh, the countries they, uh, they conquered and instead of doing what Babylonia did, which was to have these massive deportations, what uh, the Assyrians liked to do was kind of a mix and a mash. They loved to kind of bring people from one place and put them in and they kind of had a, kind of a redistribution um, of their enemies in order to kind of both confuse them as well as to try to kind of break down a lot of the nationalistic tendencies that a lot of the countries had. Um, and so you have Jonah, which is going to preach against the country that is going to destroy his homeland. So a little bit of the reason why you can understand why he says, I don't want to go to Nineveh, right? Not a lot of us are going, yeah, I'd really like to go to Iraq and Iran, and preach the gospel of wonderful grace so they can be productive societies, right? You kind of get why some people go, ah, I'm not really interested. I'd rather even go to Canada, right? And so that's kind of a normal, a normal tendency that we might have. And it's also interesting that when you look at this, I thought Ryan really hit on it very interesting last week. One of the things that Ryan kept emphasizing over and over and over again, which as much as God gets a bad rap, for the judgments that he gives and the, uh, the, the destruction that he brings, he is amazingly patient, isn't he? 
He is amazingly kind. He is amazingly gracious. And it is this grace that Jonah is upset about. And if you go back and take a look at the account of Jonah, he says what? He says, I don't want to go. And then he finally gets there and he preaches and they repent. And God says, okay, I won't destroy you. And his statement is, isn't this what I told you back before I left? The reason why I didn't want to come here. Like I knew this was going to happen. I absolutely knew that these guys were going to repent and then you were going to be kind to them. And I didn't want to have any part of that, which is fascinating. And also it does this, our outline for tonight. Prophets did a whole lot more than write books and just predict future events. That's kind of how we understand many of our prophets. First of all, they didn't write books. Not all of them didn't. There were a number of prophets that did not sit down and write books. So God, through his wisdom and through his providence, has given us a number of books, which we actually have in our Bible, but not every prophet wrote a book. And the second thing that is very important to see is that when you look at the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, although there might be some predictive elements, tomorrow at this day, this is what we're going to find, tomorrow at this, that's actually a common phrase with both Elijah and Elisha, here's what's happening, the rain is coming, uh, food is coming, and so there's a number of different instances in which we see something that might be predictive, but most of us, when we look at the predictive elements of a prophet, usually what we're thinking about is a hundred years from now, this is what's going to happen. Two hundred years from now, this is what God is going to do. And yet you look in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and indeed many of the others and you actually don't see that. Even when you do have those prophetic future event type things, they're actually even couched in this I want you, I call you back to the covenant that we made at Mount Sinai. I call you back to remember me as your God. I call you back to this relationship in which you will be incredibly blessed and not cursed. And if not, I will judge you. And if not, the enemy will come. And if not, so the predictive elements are not even just random, but even the predictive prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah. The reason why they're going to come about is because God knows that even in the midst of his kindness and in his patience and in his sending of prophets, that his people are still going to say, eh, we'd rather worship Baal. We would rather still forsake you. We would rather still trust in the Egyptians when it comes to needing help from our enemies. We don't trust you, Yahweh. We would rather go in a different direction, which is one of the reasons why books like this stand out all the more. I mean, think about it. Think about even, now here's where it gets really, really good. Is the more that I looked at this material from Elisha and the more that I began to look at this, I thought, wow, there's a lot of comparisons here between Jesus and these prophets. Jesus even makes a reference to this. He preaches at the synagogue in his hometown. And when he preaches this amazing sermon, and he says, hey, by the way, this prophecy that I just took from Isaiah, which predicted even beyond their uh, deportation, God's ultimate restoration, and this ultimate day where God would come and provide a, soul, a level of restoration that would blow their minds, and truly, the messianic kingdom. And Jesus says, um, the blind are going to see, the, the, those that are, are, uh, are, are lepers are going to be made clean again, the dead are going to rise, those in prison will be set free, 
And then he says this, and today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And their response was what? Oh yeah, we're gonna kill you, literally. At Nazareth, they, they grab him, and, and actually in a, a few weeks, we'll actually be right on the hill where they tried to throw Jesus off. It's amazing how when Jesus says, this is the kingdom that is coming, their response is, we are going to kill you. We don't want any, 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 any part of this. And actually what's fascinating is you see very similar, not just even miracles, but you see a similar attitude. And what you actually see and what Jesus actually says to them is, hey, now I know why Elijah, Elisha, and now I know why these guys are going outside of Israel to help people. Now I know why guys like Naaman are getting healed because, and this is the accusation of Jesus, so it's not in any way, shape, or form anti-Semitic, okay? It's coming from the wonderful Jew that Jesus was. But it is their hardness of heart, and Jesus says to them, why is it that Israel is always stubborn of heart? And you actually see it in the midst of these these, these, these prophets that are speaking. Jonah goes to Nineveh and they repent. Elijah and Elisha are speaking to Israel and they refuse. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing in terms of the stubbornness that people have in their own hearts. And we're going to actually see this as we walk through the story of the great prophet Elijah. So the number one thing is what do we, when we look at the prophet's ministry, what do we actually see? That prophets did a whole lot more than just write, big, write books and, and predict future events. Uh, again, I, I don't mind saying this over and over and over again. They remind the people of God of their covenant with him. And the idea of that covenant relationship is this. When there is faithfulness, there will be blessings. And where there is rebellion, and where there is disobedience, there are going to be curses. People ask me, um, what, what kind of titles do you think best exist today or should exist today in the church? And I've always thought, without all of the baggage, that one of the best descriptions of a pastor or a preacher or a minister is actually that of prophet, in this sense. Not Nobody can challenge my words because they come directly from the Lord. No, not that. Although when anyone speaks, thus saith the Lord from Scripture, I believe there is that level of authority. But, but not that essence of it. But I, I really do believe that my, my calling, I do believe that a minister's um, a directive from God is to remind his people of their covenant relationship with God and remind the people of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ, this, that if you are faithful and if you remain true to who God is, that there is a covenantal promise of blessing. You know, those are the kind of funerals I love to preach. Those are the kind of, that kind of encouragement I love to bring. That kind of hope is so desperately needed. And on the, I won't say the flip, kind of on the, on the same side as that, if you find yourself in rebellion or being disobedient to God, then I hope that you are at some level preparing to deal with God in the fullness of who he is as a rebellious child, as a disobedient servant. And God is not going to be mocked. And that is, in essence, the prophet's words. Which So for those of us that hear the words that come down from God, 
And we, 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 we are, we're literally, we're, we're trying to figure out, like, God, who are you and what do you want from me? Who are you and what do you want from me? And our, 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 uh, our framework that we need to look through is actually the, the framework of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself talks about this idea of blessings and curses. Sermon on the Mount, right? That wasn't that long ago. He doesn't say, blessed are everyone, because I'm a nice guy. He doesn't say that, does he? Blessed are you, and he describes this. And then he says, hey, and by the way, there are some people who are gonna build their houses in bad places. But hey, you know what? God's a really nice guy, and so wherever, wherever you build your house, I'm sure you'll be taken. He doesn't say that. What does he say? You're gonna know a tree by its fruit. There's two roads, narrow and wide. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter in. What's he describing there? Not a work salvation. He's not saying, yeah, you guys need to be better because if you're not better, I'm not letting you in. That's not it. It's that we need to recognize that God is not kidding around in terms of his wonderful grace to us, his incredible mercy that has been given us to, to, in, through Jesus Christ. And one thing I love to do is to come alongside and say, listen, like the God who promised to be faithful, and I want you to think about his son and how he died for us, and I want you to find great encouragement knowing that God will look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because you've never done anything wrong, but because you've trust Jesus with your sin problem. So this is what the prophet's idea or the, the prophet's role is, or is to remind people of the covenant since I am actually on the other side and you can be too. Uh, we're actually, we're all on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should be, capital P, small p, I don't care how you describe it, we should be covenant reminders to one another of what God has said and what God is going to do. And in that way, we can even share in the ministry of these great prophets. Jesus actually says what? That compared to these men, where do we stand in comparison to these men in the kingdom? Do you remember what he says? Greater. Greater. Okay, so I don't know if you think of yourself as greater than Elijah or Elisha, right? How many of you go, oh yeah, I'm better? How many of you think you're better than Elijah and Elisha? Shame on all of you. Raise your hand right now. Raise your hand right now. Thank you, you finally got it right. Um, and by the way, if you don't agree with me, that's, that, that's your problem. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. You'll have to take it up with him. He actually said we are greater than these people. They, 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 they look at us and go, oh, I wish I could talk about Jesus. All I got to talk about, okay, so. Uh, let's take a look at the second one. His, speaking of Elisha, his ministry is a continuation of the mission of Elijah. And it's important for us to actually see the connection. Ryan actually brought this up last week as well, is that there is a strong connection between Elijah and Elisha with these two other Old Testament people, Moses and Joshua. So there is a strong correlation, and I listed a kind of a number of things that the commentators like to describe. The miraculous crossing of the Jordan when they throw down the cloak, and both Elijah and Elisha does that. The presence at these three particular cities is a little bit interesting, at Bethel, at Gilgal, and then at Jericho. Both Moses and Elijah, uh, we're not both Moses and Elijah, but in terms of the continuation, you see Moses handing off, and then these are the first places that, that Joshua actually deals with. And then and also the ascension of Elijah at the same location where Moses died. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting to note that the Jewish historian Josephus is actually making fun of the idea that Moses' burial place is not a secret. It's where Elijah was taken up, and we know where that is. 
And so there's a strong continuation in terms of what's going to be happening here, what's going to be happening here in terms of what actually happened here. So this idea of succession, and this is where it's really important for you to realize, the idea of succession that happens in the Bible, particularly here, is not about, oh, look at how great Joshua is, or look at how great Elijah is. Um, I want you to just kind of go back and, and look at a very interesting story that happened in his life. And, and, and kind of see even why there's a lot of tension. Elisha, one of the number one names that he is actually called is man of God. Not son of man, but man of God. The kings are appointed by God. Therefore, to oppose the king is to oppose who? God. And that's a big deal. Do you guys remember the very interesting story with Moses where people decide to complain about his leadership? He's got an instance where his sister does it. Her and Aaron decide to complain, and what happens to her? She's struck with what? With leprosy. For what? For challenging Moses. Ooh, because Moses is such a big guy? Well, that's really not the issue. The, the problem about challenging leadership in the Bible has when I say this, it has essentially nothing to do with the leader themselves. It's not that Moses was born to, by a special woman. It's just that God is the one who has appointed him. So if a God appoints Moses and you decide you don't want to listen to him, then I just want you to realize who are you arguing with? God. And so when people rise up and they say, hey, we don't think that, that only you guys get to become priests. Moses says, oh, okay, and a bunch of people die. Why? Because Moses is so much better than everybody else? No. Because to oppose Moses is to oppose Yahweh himself. And that is the big deal about succession. Succession really has everything to do with, will you submit to the ultimate plan and the purposes of God? Or are you going to decide to rise up for yourself and not listen? The Bible has a very, 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 very strong opinion about submission to authorities, right? It's not cool in our culture to do that. We all think we know better than everybody. We all think we're allowed to have an opinion about anybody. And uh, I'm just, I'm grateful to grow up in both a family that had a profound reverence and respect for our authorities. And I was always cautioned about how I would speak, because this may surprise you, but I have a lot of opinions. And I have a lot of opinions about everybody. And my dad did such a wonderful job of just always cautioning me about what I said. And because here's what I thought. I thought that as long as I was right, I could say whatever I wanted, because I think they're an idiot. Or I could say whatever, because they're wrong. So I can say whatever I want, right? Because they're wrong. And, but not if they're in a position of authority. Well, why? Well, be, what does Paul say? Because who put them there? God. Therefore, if you decide to rebel against them, who are you really rebelling against? God. That is a consistent biblical theme. And so as you get ready to deal, by the way, it doesn't even mean that we just kind of follow lockstep, not thinking in the process. That's not what it says. But even in Jesus' trial, and even when Paul does the same thing, being tried by wicked people, they both have a profound sense of respect 
in the middle of that context. Both Paul and Jesus do. Why? Because the leaders are right? No. But because a reverence is due them. Why? Because God is the one who's in control. Well, how does that matter? Because God's the one who's instituted this. So therefore, to fight against this means to challenge the authority of God. And so that is the framework here. So as we're moving from the ministry of Elijah to Elisha, there is going to be this handing off of authority, this handing off of responsibility. Um, The last thing that is just good to think about when you think about the prophets is that in the life of a prophet, it is good to recognize the mercy of a God-ordained directed rebuke. It comes from God, it's directed from God, it originates in him, and he is still actually, here's the way I love to think about a divine, a divine or a God-ordained rebuke or a God-ordained directed rebuke, is that God has not abandoned his people. I would argue that the most interesting and difficult thing to deal with in the Bible is just silence. Where there's nothing that's to be said. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't think that that means that, that God hasn't already spoken. Sometimes in the sense of silence, uh, I think this is even true in terms of our own prayers. I meet a lot of people that are praying for something and I'm going, actually, God already answered that prayer. Well, I'm just waiting to see like if I'm supposed to stay with my wife because you know she's really driving me crazy. And so I'm just kind of praying to God right now and just you know waiting to see what he says. Uh, actually, he already said a lot about that in the Bible, and he's not gonna just change his mind about that, and so he's already spoken, so you can go back and look at what he already has said. So I'm not talking that kind of silence. But when God raises up a prophet, as difficult as it might be to hear a prophet, prophets, by the way, are very seldom, if ever, popular. Like one of the reasons you know you're a prophet is if the majority of people don't like you, don't agree with you, Another statement my dad used to always warn me about, beware when all men speak well of you, son. Beware when all men speak well of you. Hmm, that's interesting, right? So when the silence exists, there there can be, especially if we have forgotten the covenant, there can be confusion. I'm not blaming God for it, And what then breaks that silence is the covenant reminder through the voice of the prophet. And so as painful as it might be, it is good to hear a prophet of God speak because all of a sudden it is in fact the voice of God that is speaking to us. And it is a reminder, wow, God is good that he has spoken. Right? I mean, have you ever just heard somebody preach or you hear somebody share something and you're just, I'm so glad you exist. I can think of some men in my life, um, some, some, uh, some, some not, not just even my mentors, but even on the, on the bigger stage, I remember hearing Matt Chandler, who's one of my favorite preachers from down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I remember just thinking when he hit, was diagnosed with a brain tumor a number of years ago, and literally, I can't tell the number of times I've prayed to God, God, you can't take him because I need him. I really have. Like, you can't take him because he's one of my favorite people to listen to, and I really, really need him, which God has said to me numerous times, actually, you need me more, and I can, I can create as many Matt Chandlers as I need, so just chill, right? But I, you know what I'm saying? When somebody like that speaks, it's like the voice of God, and that's what we need to be thinking about as we are dealing with 
these prophets. There is some pain, there is some sting, and there is also this, wow, God has not abandoned us. He is actually speaking some profound truth to our lives. So in the life of Elijah slash Elisha, we see that Yahweh will fight consistently against the leaders of Israel who will disobey and rebel against him. And so who does he put in their way? These kings that think they can do whatever they want. Last week, Ryan talked about Ahab and Naboth and Jezebel. Who's going to stand up to this guy? Oh, that's easy. Elijah. There's no problem standing up against him. And so who's going to stand up against the the kings that we're going to actually see? And the answer is Elisha is going to stand up and take his place. So this leadership transition, if you look at it specifically in 1 Kings 19, you actually have the very first instance where Elisha is predicted or promised to come. And I love this. This is one of my favorite stories. And so I'm going to just, I don't, I'm not going to retell it. Ryan talked about it last week. But the one piece that I want you to, to just kind of hold on to is, you remember the famous story when Elijah runs away, right? And he runs away. And everybody thinks, well, why is he running away? Well, because, you know, he came down off the mountain and Jezebel threatened him and he was afraid. Ah, that's actually, I doubt the case. Because he keeps saying two different times, what? I wish I were dead. So if he's afraid of Jezebel, I, I don't think, I don't think his, his fear of Jezebel, and I think she might kill me, and that's why I'm going to run away. I don't think that's his problem. I really think Elijah's major problem is, after everything that I've done, I don't think I'm making a difference. After all the preaching that I've done, and I've killed all of these prophets of Baal, a Jezebel just keeps doing what she's doing. And so I don't even know if it's worth me getting up and preaching this Sunday. You know what? I'm going to Branson. Why Branson, I have no idea, but I'm going to Branson, okay? And so I travel all, I run all the way to Branson. And when I get to Branson, God goes, what are you doing here? Well, I'm the only one. I give him this big sob story about how, how terrible life is, and I don't think I'm making a difference at Sunnybrook. And I love what, what's fascinating is when you read the First Kings 19 material again, God never says, well, it's okay, I promise you, you're making a difference. Buck up, camper. He never answers them. He never, he never tries to console them. He goes, yeah, I know. I want you to do these three things. First of all, get up and go home. And these three things, on your way home, I want you to stop in Joplin and I want you to anoint such and such and they're going to do this for me. And then in Tulsa, I want you to stop and I want you to do this. And then at that McDonald's on the way back from Tulsa, I want you to stop there and you're going to anoint Elisha and he will continue your ministry. It's fascinating. Elijah complains, I don't think anything is happening. And God's response is, yeah, I know. On the way home, I want you to anoint these three people because the ministry is gonna continue. Elisha struggles with what so many people struggle with, which I don't think I'm making a difference. And I love the fact that God says, I know you don't. Okay, keep doing what you're doing. Somebody know what that feels like? I, I just, I don't know if I'm making this huge, I mean, there, there were times, when I was younger, and I just knew that I was going to make like this huge impact. Billy who, Graham? <laughs> Give me a break. Not even Canadian. You know, this is, I, I can do some pretty amazing things in terms of how this is gonna work. So there's no way I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this big, and then you begin to do ministry, and you begin to do ministry, and you just realize, wow, there's so much of this that I just have no control over, and God's gonna do his own thing. And um, one, of the, one of the things that was really interesting was um, being in Thailand for these, the last few weeks, an amazing missionary named James Frazier. 
dedicated his life. He was an engineer. He was um, uh, about to go to like whatever super engineering school is. And finally he thought, no, I think I need to go to, to China and I need to preach the gospel. So he did. Went through profound depression in regards to why am I not seeing any converts and just went to this in the middle of the mountains amongst the Lisu people and poured out years and years and years and years and years and years and years of ministry and no converts. And it was literally almost suicidal, like just absolutely depressed. And then all of a sudden, tons and tons of converts started coming and there are over like hundreds of thousands of Lisu Christians now because of the ministry of, uh, of James Frazier and others that went. Isn't that incredible? And then I'm there, and they're saying, yeah, and it's, 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 it's really complicated now because um, there's a lot of the younger people that are not really connecting to faith, and we're trying to figure out how do we keep this going and how do we sustain this, and the churches are beginning to dry up, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that back in 1916 and 1926, um, that a lot of the Western missionaries, I, I would even, I'm not even trying to fault them, but only knew how to kind of create a kind of Christianity that was anti-Lisu, right? And now all of a sudden, like 60 years later, 70 years later, 80 years later, how, what part of our culture can we bring back, you know? And so I'm, I'm sitting there talking to them and I'm going, wow, it's a really cool story if we just say there were hundreds of thousands of converts and, and then Jesus came back. But I'm just looking around at these people and they're going, hey, what do we do now? And I'm not even saying that the ministry of James Frazier and J. Russell Morris was, was for naught, but I just thought, wow, every generation needs to pick up where others left off, right? Just think about that. And so Elijah had a great ministry. He said, I don't know if I'm making an eternal difference. Well, listen, that's God to figure out. And now Elisha steps in. I, I love the reminder. I, I think about this a lot. That someday I'm gonna die and then there'll be church here at Sunnybrook. Like literally, a few days later. If I die on a Friday, Sunday, someone's gonna preach. Right? And the ministry will continue on. And the next generation, 30, 40 years from now, is gonna have to take a look at this. And how do we not worry about successors, but trust God to be the one to provide everything? So, in this transition from Elijah to Elisha, some things that we find very interesting. Not only was it predicted, but we actually see coming out of this, uh, you actually see the healing of the waters of Jericho. Elisha is met, and they're like, hey, this water is poisonous. It literally, it's, it's the, the, the Hebrew word that's used there is it's making everybody and the land itself sterile. By the way, there's lots of different commentators that discuss whether or not there was some kind of, some kind of radioactive spring that was connected. I have no idea. Literally, I have no idea. I do know this, that after Elisha confronts this, and after Elisha deals with this and says, bring me a pot, and let's put some salt in it, and then uh, that's going to heal the waters. Now all of a sudden the waters are healed. That is reminiscent of who? Who, who, who healed the waters? Moses. The water is bitter, the water is poisonous, the water from this rock, and Moses does what? Heals the water. So kind of drawing back to that same um, scenario. And then going back to the, to, the, to the need for authority, Elijah in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1, 8. It has to be 2nd. 2 Kings 1, 8. Elijah, much like John the Baptist, is described as a hairy man, as someone like in garments that are hairy. 
And then we have this very interesting, if there's one thing that I thought was kind of interesting was when I was looking at kind of the format of this, I was kind of thinking, oh, I hope I get Elijah and not Elisha. Because Elisha's stories are just nuts. Like they are. If you've never studied Elisha's stories, they're just bizarre, right? So if you ever want to, if, you ever, if there's ever like a really weird story in the Bible, go, oh, that's probably Elisha. If you're playing Trivial Pursuit or something, okay? Uh, that's probably an Elisha story. So here is one of the first most bizarre stories. So Elisha's coming back. He heals the water, kind of representing this figure here. And after he's done healing the water, these young men come up. And by the way, they're probably not like five-year-olds, okay? These young men are probably in their teenage, early 20 type years. That's kind of the Hebrew word for young boy is probably somebody that's a little bit older than just a little tiny child. And they say what? Go up, oh bald head. Okay? A, a sign of profound disrespect. And basically what they're saying is, and you gotta look at this in this context. When Elijah is getting ready to leave, Elisha says to him what? I want a double portion of your spirit. Do you know what that means? A double portion is actually the statement that is actually made. A double portion is what is, is, what is described is I want the inheritance of the firstborn. So I, I want the inheritance. I want to be a prophet like you're a prophet. So literally what he's asking is not, I want to be twice as good as you. That's what I always thought it was. I want a double portion. You've got one portion, Elijah. I want twice as much. I want to do twice as much as you did. 800 prophets at Mount Carmel. You know, that's not what he's actually saying. The phrase double portion means I want what you have. I want to be your successor. And he says what to him? If you see me when I leave, then you'll know that that will actually happen. And so when these men, these young boys, come up to him and say, go up, oh bald head, what they're literally saying is, you're not Elijah's replacement. You don't have the authority that Elijah had. So I don't, I don't know who you are, I don't know who you think you are, but you're just a baldy. So you don't have the power and the authority, and they're profoundly disrespectful to who Elisha is, and again, this is one of those weird stories. You're thinking, um, you know, I'm sure Morgan in the children's area, should we be sharing this one with the kids? <laughs> but what happens when Elisha is rebuked? And again, who's being rebuked when you're rebuking Elisha? You're basically saying, hey, God, I don't think you have authority to give authority here. And so Elisha does what? He calls out these two she-bears to come. And, and you know, this is kind of a good thing. If you're ever thinking, how do I handle children that are being disrespectful? Call down she-bears to kill them. That's what the Bible teaches. So, uh, again, what is being protected there, what is ultimately being protected there is the continued authority and ministry of Elisha. Make sense? Okay. Now, um, I decided to kind of line up because there are a number of very interesting and yet bizarre miracles. This first one, not very uh, bizarre. Again, remembering that what happens, as Ryan described this again last week, he described the idea that Baal or Baal, that the big thing about him is he is the god of fertility. And that's why things like no rain and no crops are an attack against just Baal. So it's not a matter of like, why is God always doing stuff with the rain and with the, with the, with the, with the harvest? And one of the big reasons why is, especially in an, in an agriculturally based society who are looking to Baal and looking to the fertility gods as the means by which they are getting the blessings of things. When the prophets come in, Elijah and Elisha, and they just shut it off. Hey, I know you think Baal is the one doing this. Well, watch this. Yeah, no more rain. 
I know you think Baal's doing this. No more crops. Come, and, come back and, and talk to me when you guys want to eat again. And so that's kind of recognizing this is who Yahweh is and how he shows his supremacy. And so there is this woman who has some oil, or she doesn't have, she has very little oil, and Elisha walks up to her, and what does he say? Hey, go get every pot in your house. And as many pots as you can get, we'll just keep filling it up, filling it up. And they keep filling it up and filling it up and filling it up because she has to pay for like her mortgage. And then what happens? As soon as they get another pot, I don't have any. As soon as that happened, the oil stopped. And Elisha said, hey, I want you to take all these pots of oil and I want you to actually go and sell them, pay your debt, and then live off, you and your family, live off all of the rest of that. And it is, again, God's, the thing that I'm always, I'm always asking in the story of Elisha is, why her? Why only her? Why are you doing, I mean, it just, it seems somewhat random. That's one of the reasons why I, I like to describe the, the prerogative and the power of God. Um, the other thing I love about the story of Elisha is it seems incredibly normal. It actually seems a little bit like normal life stuff. Uh, and so in the times where I'm wanting like miracles in just the mundane, and I think, ah, you know, it's, 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 this, God doesn't, I don't know if God cares about this. I don't know if God's got a real heart for this. I love to read Elisha, because there's this woman, I got this huge debt, and Elisha goes, yeah, I can fix this. And God obviously is the one who's organizing all of this, and God, through his kindness, through Elisha, helps this woman with her debt. And so, God is the one who's ultimately going to be the one who provides. So you, say, you have the text. I would just say, even read through these stories, and, and you'd be uh, both impressed and, uh, and I, I think even uh, pleased with how these, how these stories are told. The next one is he actually meets a Shunammite woman, um, and uh, she says, hey, I want to make this really nice room for Elisha to stay, which is kind of reminiscent of Elijah as well. And this woman provides a place for Elisha to stay, and then after he stays there for a while, he looks at her and he says, essentially, hey, what can I do for you? And she's really not one to make any kind of requests. And so she says, I don't have a son. And he says, what? This time next year, you're gonna have a son, which is kind of a biblical thing for prophets to do or for God to provide this kindness. Uh, And again, remember that all through this, whenever you see food being provided, rain being provided, children being provided, life being provided, it's a sign of who is the one behind all of this. And it is the man of God. And therefore, it is Yahweh God who is actually doing this. And so in a, in a, in a land where there is a lot of, of, of brokenness and a lot of wrongness and a lot of famine and a lot of death, wherever the man of God is, you actually see a profound sense of provision. And so he promises this woman that she is going to have a child. Child is never ever named, um, or never named. And, uh, and then after this child is born, this child dies. And she freaks out because he's dead and she She's taken back to the house, and so she sends her servants, you need to go and, and get some help, and so go find the man of God, and he finds the man of God, and Elisha turns to his, uh, uh, his, uh, his, his servant and gives him his staff. It's, it's interesting, you know, I was doing this on Sunday, talking about the healings of Jesus, and every, how many, you guys know what I'm talking about, where you're looking for a formula in terms of how people are cured or saved or healed, Right? And I love when you think it's gonna happen the way it's supposed to happen, and then God's like, no, 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 no. I am not, I am not A squared plus B squares equals healed squared. Like, that's not how I work, okay? 
And so Elisha says to his servant, hey, take this staff and go put it on the boy. So the servant runs with the staff. Okay, yeah, Elisha, the man of God said, puts the staff on the boy. What happens? Nothing. Elisha shows up. Hey, what happened? Um, Nothing. I got here. They welcomed me. It was awkward. I went in. I did exactly what you told me and nothing. And Elisha goes, oh, okay. Well, then I better do something else. And this is a weird one. What does he do? He lies down on the boy, and it describes. He lies down mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes. It literally describes like Elijah laying on top of this this boy who is dead. And then, this is where it gets a little interesting, (laughs) starting to get interesting, huh? Anyway, he he, all of a sudden describes in the text that his body starts to become warm, and then he what? Do you remember this? Sneezes seven times. And then gets up and he's alive. Now, one thing that I, I think is, is kind of interesting is that we don't know exactly what is happening with all of that. But the word that is used in the Hebrew for sneeze, okay, not trying to gross you out, but is actually a word that is rarely used for the expulsion of pus, okay? So don't know if that's like a spiritual metaphor that is being used in terms of life coming. But he's sick, right? Remember, he's, oh, mom, my head, my head, and he dies. And that word is kind of just kind of this really interesting word. And so when he sneezes, it's either literally like this, this healing or this spiritual revival, however you want it. We don't really know exactly what it means. But it's a very interesting Hebrew word in terms of what it's being described. And this boy comes back to life. It's interesting that the mom says to Elisha, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even ask you for this kid. Like this is while he's still dead, right? She comes in and she goes, did I ask for this? I didn't even ask for this. And then you give this to me and then God takes him away. Why is this happening to me? And I thought, boy, that is so typical of us. Isn't it? Like I didn't really ask for this blessing and then I get this blessing and then when he gets taken away, I get really, really angry. And, and, and Elisha never really comments on it, but God is still just kind of going along and Elisha's doing his thing and he provides healing for this boy. Um, next, uh, Elisha purifies some stew. Now, in this context, it is the feeding of a group of prophets. And so in the midst of this feeding of this group of prophets, they're making this stew and somebody grabs something. It's almost like some kind of a poisonous branch and puts it in the stew and they yell, ah, there's death in the pot. And Elisha looks at it and says, no, 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 no. And he kind of does something with it. And then he says, give it out. And everybody is absolutely fine. And Elisha, again, provides a healing so that people can have sustenance. And then right after that, again, somewhat reminiscent of a future great person who is going to do this, there is also an instance where a number of barley loaves are brought to these prophets and they look around and what do they say? There's not enough here to feed us all. And Elisha says, just hand them out. And they hand out these barley loaves. I don't know, how many of you maybe have never even heard of this story? They hand out these, bar- not, not, this isn't the Jesus one, this is the Elisha one. And they hands out these loaves and there is enough left over at the end. And so Elisha, in the midst of famine and in the midst of uh, this judgment that is happening against a king and a nation that is being rebellious against God, God steps in through his prophet and provides uh, food for those people. Another great story, which many of us know, um, is the great story of Naaman. 
Naaman is a Syrian commander who uh, finds out that he has leprosy and is actually encouraged to go to the man of God so that he might be healed. And so he does. And he meets Elisha, and Elisha says to him, go and baptize yourself in the Jordan River. And if you remember the story, Naaman says what? Hey, thanks, I appreciate that. No, he's like, seriously? Like, there are better rivers like, than this where I come from, and he refuses to do it. He refuses to submit himself or to humble himself. He's actually really kind of mad that Elisha didn't come out and meet it himself, but actually just sent a servant. And finally, his servants beg him. He says, if he had asked you to do like this really great, complicated, difficult thing, would you have done it to be healed of this illness? And the answer, he doesn't really say it, but the implied answer is what? Yeah, I would have done anything to be healed. Then why won't you do this small thing? And Naaman humbles himself. And he goes, and then after he is baptized seven times or washed seven times in the Jordan, when he comes up, it actually says his skin is as, was as clean and was as fresh and was as new as a child's. And he is absolutely overwhelmed by this. He is absolutely grateful for this. And so he goes to Elisha and to his servant Gehazi, and he says to him, listen, I want to give you some stuff. And I love what Elisha says. I don't want your stuff. Well, let me give it to your servant. No, we don't need it. And then the servant behind Elisha's back chases down Naaman and says, hey, 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 hey. by the way, by the way, we've, we've reconsidered. And remember that offer that you actually had? We really would like that. And so Naaman says, hey, that's no problem. He gives it to him. And then Elisha, who knows this, turns around and says, where were you? Where were you? And then begins to kind of recount this incredible story of his servant's greed. And he says to him, do you remember the story? He actually says to him, and may Naaman's prophecy, or may, may Naaman's leprosy cling to your body as long as you live. So this is what it's like <laughs> to work with this amazing prophet. You've got all these amazing stories and these interesting stories that are happening. Unlike Elijah, who's got this confrontation on Mount Carmel, you've got a lot of, in the life of Elisha, a lot of one-to-one -one scenarios. A lot of this woman, uh, his servant, this man over here. And yet the ministry of Elisha is definitely making an impact on the people around him. Um, another one that is kind of a, a very memorable one is, and this is one of the most simple and bizarre miracles in the Bible. If you were to ask me what's the most bizarre miracle in the Bible, I'm not talking the most, like, the most amazing, I'm talking about just the most bizarre, is uh, when these prophets right here in 2 Kings chapter 6, when these um, uh, prophets are actually trying to make a house and they're working with this borrowed axe and the axe head falls off and goes into the water. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Elisha goes, oh, God's not too big for this. And he throws a, throw a stick in. And they throw a stick in and the axe head floats. And the, the text points out, even though it was iron. Right? Actually, this and the, um, the, the coin in the mouth of the fish with Peter and Jesus is another very bizarre miracle to me. Again, the, notice the, the care and, and notice the prerogative of God to be the one who's going to provide and ultimately, I think, like verify the ministry of this great prophet. Um, it, directly on the heels of that one is this, 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 this very wicked Syrian king 
who is absolutely frustrated that wherever he goes, uh, the Israel armies are always aware of what's absolutely going to happen. Again, God is going to prove himself as the one who is going to be able to provide for and to protect his people. Earlier this week on Tuesday when I was actually teaching in our uh, Bible study that we're doing on the book of Judges, um, there's a very interesting story um, in Judges 10, 11, and 12. And in that particular story, uh, it describes God being very disappointed in his people because they did evil in the sight of the Lord by following the gods of the Ammonites and the God of the Philistines. What's so strange about that is who were the ones oppressing the Israelites? And it was who? the Ammonites and the Philistines. Why are you worshiping the gods of the people that are oppressing you? And the answer, well, if they're able to oppress us, then their God must be bigger than our God. Like it actually like, makes sense in their spiritually deprived, depraved and broken context, right? And so what does the text say? The text says, and so the Lord sold them over to those people. And then the people cry out to God. And you know what God says to them? Hey, go, you, you go talk to the gods that you've been bowing down to and see how they help you. You go back to them and see how that works. And that actually is like a, a repeated concept through, through, this, through this period of time. Um, and I just can't help but even think in terms of how that really uh, like still speaks to us today. We, we wanna have a close experience with God and we want to kind of feel like he is, his presence is here. I'll, I'll share a story that my wife and I have, have talked about a number of different times. Um, we have probably, I think I could say this, we, I don't know if we've ever felt as close to God in terms of his direct provision as when we had like virtually nothing. When we started out in college and we had left Canada and we were barely making it, and I remember one night we're in half tears, half laughter, feeling like we've got nothing, like literally, like we were, it was pretty rough, right? And for something, there was something special about that. There was something like, like God really is gonna provide for us. I remember the next, remember that, honey? We got that check from my brother for like 150 bucks. It's like, are you serious? Like the next day, Right? Nowadays, I got a check for 150 bucks. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks, man. Like, that was like a billion dollars to me. And it was more of what it actually, like, it was like God's provision was like right there. Right? And then after I kind of learned, like, you know, if I just, you know, I'm careful and I get a good job and I save properly, then, and, I'm, and, I, and I begin to kind of inoculate myself from the constant provision. And by the way, that doesn't mean, well, the only way to really experience God is to always kind of live on. That's not what I'm saying. But it's amazing how when we decide to take other things and kind of then to see the provision through them instead of through Yahweh, that it, it really can, right? It can inoculate us from his presence and his power. And what these prophets can do in very many real ways is they can remind us. It's, it's, it's like, hey, you know, God, I wish I could experience you in your fullness, and I wish I could experience, and God's saying, no, 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 why don't you cry out to, to your gods? Why don't you cry out to the, the comfort that you've been able to create? See how that works for you, Jim? You know, like, I, I know that you really want a relationship with God, and you can, but you've also actually, you're way more content with your human relationships where you don't even think you need me anymore. Like you're, you're way more providing for yourself and you don't even need to feel my provision. Cry out to your gods and see how they satisfy you on this day. 
And that's a little bit of what is happening here, is that what God is doing when the Syrians begin to rise up is God is constantly reminding his people, I am the one through which this provision is going to come from. I am the one through which this protection is actually going to come from. And I think that's one of the big reasons why you can't ever figure, you can never really know if God's going to kind of expose me so that I can learn a very difficult lesson or whether or not God is going to surprise me, and I'm going to, I'm going to call that second one the surprise. Wow, God, God, God didn't let me go through that terrible experience. Like, that one's the blessing. And actually, I think both are. There can be the profound experience that we go through, which can seem really, really painful, in which I can really sense God's ultimate protection and provision, even though it was rather rough, and I still have some scars to see it, to see kind of God's hand in it. And in this instance, we actually see God sending the the Syrian army, and the Syrian army is really, really angry, and they want to know, why is it that we can never win? And the answer is, well, Elisha keeps telling the Israelites, like, where we are and what we're doing. So they go, let's find Elisha. Where is he? And he's in Dothan. And so what do they do? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. What do they do? They decide to surround the city. And again, it's a different uh, servant. It's actually an unnamed servant. The servant wakes up and he sees the horses and the chariots of the Syrians and he freaks out. And he says to Elisha, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good at all. And Elisha prays. And what does he pray for? It's interesting. He doesn't pray, God, make the Syrians go away. What does he say? God, open up to my servant's eyes. If you've not read this story, you've got to read this one. Open up my servant's eyes so that they might see who you have surrounding them. And the servant's eyes are opened. And so imagine that you're seeing this, the city of Dothan and then the Syrian army and then the angelic armies around that. And all of a sudden in that context, you're like, oh, okay. I love that story. Because it really does remind me that when we look at the difficulties and the circumstances of life, what we fail to fully appreciate or understand with our human eyes is God's ultimate provision and protection. God, give me a perspective. Give me a, an ability to see what is going on around me that is not just uh, tied down or is not just saturated with just what is the physical right here. Give me spiritual eyes to see this. Give me eyes of faith so that I can understand this. Um, The second last story that I want to deal with is a very interesting story with uh, a a future king is known and named as Heziel. Heziel has a a king over him. He's like like a servant for this king whose name is Ben-Hadad. Heziel ends up having a son who he names also Ben-Hadad. Okay, it's a popular name, Ben meaning son son of Hadad. And so Heziel actually is sent because uh, Ben-Hadad is sick. He's the Syrian king, by the way. And he's really, really sick. And he says, I want you to go to Elisha. They all know where to go to get some real information from God, is I want you to go to Elisha and I want you to find out whether or not I'm going to live. And he goes, uh, Heziel goes to Elisha and he says, Ben-Hadad wants to know if he's going to live. And this, Ryan was talking last week about the number of times that different prophets are sarcastic or the different times the prophets may even kind of manipulate the situation um, under God's divine direction. This one's a very interesting one. Elisha says, go and tell Ben-Hadad that he's going to be just fine. And then he starts to cry. And he says, why? He says, because he's not gonna be fine. He's gonna die. 
only to tell him, no, go, go, go tell him he's going to be fine, but he's going to die. And essentially, like, you're going to be the one that's going to kill him. And Hazael says, why are you crying? He says, because I see what you are going to do to the people of Israel. Go. It's a, it is a sobering story. So here is this prophet who can see, much like other prophets can see, this destruction that's going to come. And I, I, I honestly, I think of that, that story, I think of that perspective as, as one, of the, one of the clearest pictures of how the Old Testament looks at like wickedness and sin. And there is a real sense, like even when God bring, brings his judgment, that there is a real sense of like sadness in it. You do know that the, that the Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So here's this prophet looking at Haziel and just crying. You know, what I would have done was I would have just reached out and grabbed Haziel and snuffed his life out, right? God had a bigger plan. This is why you don't have Elijah and then Jim. You have Elijah and Elisha. Although if God would have told me to do it, I'm sure it would have worked out. And then at the very end, Elisha dies. He gets sick. <laughs> and it actually, which is always a good reminder, right? For those people who believe like real people who have faith never get sick and never die. I had a neighbor, I won't say who it is, but her name was Dawn. And uh, she, she would always talk about how like if you really believed, like you would never get sick. And so every time she would get sick, I would go, Dawn, what's happening? Faith not working right, you know? Because uh, I think it's good to remind her how silly that is. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that God can't, right? But it's to, to try to create this formula. And I love this. Elisha, the prophet, gets sick and dies. And by the way, God's fine with that. He's not undone. Elisha's not undone by it. And as Elisha's life ends, he dies and some like caravanning, masquerading guys just stumble across his grave, okay? Uh, and, and actually, like, somebody dies, and then they come back to life. This is how powerful Elisha's body actually is. So even in his death, he has very bizarre stories that happen to him. So the big thing that I love to remember when I think about the life of Elisha is truly Yahweh's um, prerogative and his power that is demonstrated this is a great account to go back and to look at both the normal and the bizarre miracles of Elisha, which remind me that God is very, very, very interested in every aspect of my life and yours. And every time I think, well, you know, God would never do, everybody tells me, yeah, you know what, God would never do that. That's just a little thing. Go read Elisha, axe heads floating. Every time you think, oh, that, I don't know how much that ultimately matters. I, because of Elisha, I give some pretty amazing things to the Lord, and I just trust him. Hey, God, really want Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State to win tonight. You think God cares about that? I know I do, right? So I'm not, not going to try to manipulate him, but I've asked him many times. Hey, you understand the big cosmic thing. I, I know this is a small thing, Right? But we are supposed to give God absolutely everything, right? We just don't do it like a spoiled brat. God, you owe me. No, we don't. But I love the fact that I've asked God for crazy things and he surprised me. And I've asked God for crazy things and he said, grow up. Right? Ask God. But trust him in all things. 
The life of Elijah clearly indicates the ultimate plan and purpose of Yahweh is for him to be glorified and for you to know he is the great provider and the great protector of his people. Amen? Love you guys. We will see you Sunday.